On this episode, the Oregon Desert Trail, Hiker Trash, the Campmore Catalog, and Ground Truthing. Welcome to the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Your hosts, Severia Tilden, Jeff Hester, and Jason Fitzpatrick. Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Almost There Adventure Podcast. Today, we have Renee Patrick with us. And I mean, I feel like I need to just call you hiker trash, but people may not know what that means or the re- relevance between the fact that you're self-identifying as hiker trash. Uh, but Renee is a uh, has had some epic uh, through hiking adventures and has made hiking a part of her life. And we're very excited to have her on the podcast with us. And Renee, why don't you do a better job of introducing yourself? (laughs) Uh, You did a pretty good job. I do identify as hiker trash. Um, I have been hiking long distance trails for over 20 years now. So fell in love with the simplicity of walking with everything on my back and just marveling that I can cross a continent one day at a time, one step at a time. So yeah, over the the decades that I've been out there, I've been trying to uh, hike and get paid to hike and tried that from lots of different directions and angles. But um, right now I'm the coordinator for the Oregon Desert Trail and that's a pretty good fit. I get to spend a lot of time hiking in Eastern Oregon, help other hikers get on the trail or route. and spend a lot of time just looking at the hiking experience and making sure um, folks have what they need to be successful out there. I feel like I want to know immediately about the Oregon Desert Trail, because that's what you're doing now. But I also, your background is like so interesting on how you got here. So I don't know, I don't know, Renee, should we start at the beginning? Should we start with like the Peace Corps and like go all the way back? Or do we want to start here and then work our way backwards? (laughs) I, you know, we could start at the beginning and just see how it unfolds. (laughs) Perfect. Let's do that. So how did you get into hiking in the outdoors? Well, it all started, uh, I will say, in a dusty village in West Africa. So I was a Peace Corps volunteer after college and went to Burkina Faso, West Africa, as a health education volunteer. And I just happened to pick up a book in the Peace Corps hostel about a woman who hiked the Appalachian Trail. Um, I had never heard of long distance hiking before. I did not grow up hiking, camping, any of that. But immediately when I read that book, I thought, this is it. This is what I'm doing next. I wasn't quite sure why or or what attracted me to it, but just um, the, yeah, something in it compelled me. And so I decided, I think it was the first month or second month in my village of a two-year service. When I'm done, I'm going to hike the Appalachian Trail. So two years later... I got myself on in 2002, started at Springer on the first day of spring and went north. So that is how it all started. And then once I was out there, um, I just loved it all. I mean, it was very painful. I had no idea what I was doing. I started with um, a crazy heavy pack, maybe 45, 50 pounds. 
um, purchase everything out of a black and white Campmore catalog because that's what you did in 2002. So <laughs> it was very, um, yeah, just had to learn the hard way about all those things. Is, is that still around? Do they still do the Campmore catalog? I mean, I stopped. Res I mean, I used to obviously get it all the time. And I ordered so much yeah. out of that thing. I wonder if do they still even have it. Are they still even around? I, I haven't even. Uh, that's like a nice memory from my early days of backpacking that I haven't thought about in a while. <laughs> We'll have to look that one up. Yeah, know. you know, I connected I connected with them. Well, they do have an Instagram account, so I gave them a little memory shout-out, like, oh, my God, I outfitted myself for the entire AT. Um, I'd, I have no idea if it's still around, but shout-out to the OG hikers who yeah. <laughs> remember. Yeah, it was like a cool – it was all drawn. There were no pictures. It was all, like, uh, illustrations and whatever, and it was, like – newspaper paper and you'd get it monthly and that uh, was kind of a neat thing <laughs> man you're old i know i know <laughs> i know and i'm younger than you so what does that what does that say I <laughs> uh, so renee a couple questions for you so the uh had you done any backpacking before the at that was like your first experience doing that or I did nothing. No, I convinced a friend of mine that it was in the Peace Corps with me um, to hike it with me. So Cindy or Average Joe was her trail name. We had trained, we were both living in Wisconsin after the Peace Corps um, that winter. And so we trained by going, what I now realize were sections of the Ice Age Trail. Again, at the time I had no concept for these long distance trails. Um, but we just went on day hikes. And so we didn't even camp. We had not used the shelter. We had not done any overnights um, until we showed up on the trail. So it was trial by fire. It was really the blind leading the blind. <laughs> yeah, you learn by doing. Exactly. And I think there's, the, you know, in the AT is a, in a way a safe place to do that because there are shelters. There are tons of other people. There's adequate access to water and in fact i went back this year as my 20-year anniversary and spent two months on the appalachian trail i started in maine this time and hiked south and got to massachusetts before i had to come back home but again part of why i wanted to go out there was the culture in the community the other hikers the shelters the infrastructure like it's this incredible trail system that has been developed and I will say it's a great place to start uh, it's it may be the most difficult thing I've ever hiked twice but it is um, a kind of plug-and-play experience which I really appreciate now that I've done a lot of the routes and the other end of the extreme side of long-distance backpacking when, when you were back there this summer doing the section from Maine to Connecticut I think you said the uh, did you stop at any of those like that you first of all when you say shelter i think my experience or my experience from like you know backpacking in the sierras or doing the wonderland trail that kind of thing are basically a very crude three-sided with maybe a roof kind of shelter you know and it's open and it's not there's not much to it but uh, i was back in new england this year for um uh, the month of August, and I stopped at a couple of the shelters in the White Mountains, and they're like amazing, you know, like the, some of those shelters in the White Mountains in particular are have like bathrooms and a kitchen and they cook meals and all of that. Did you have that experience at all on, on this past trip? 
Um, yeah, I did stay. Uh, well, I paid full price to stay at one of those really nice lodges with where they make you several meals. Um, it was a storm day above Treeline on Mount Washington. I thought I am going to splurge go. yeah. and um, treat myself because it also is seen and as this is my vacation. I don't have to suffer <laughs> if I don't want to. But yeah, primarily most of the shelters along the AT are those three sided lean twos. And the first time in 2002, I slept in them because I was carrying a tarp and I didn't know how to use it. <laughs> I finally, <laughs> towards the end, figured out how to set it up and slept in it. But mostly out of, um, yeah, just uncertainty and the newbiness of it all. I slept in shelters the entire way. And this, this summer, I mostly stayed out of the shelters. Now that I know I can get better sleep if there's not 12 six to 12 people snoring around me or mice running over my face. Um, I now yeah. prefer my own space if I can get it. <laughs> Renee, do you feel as though your Peace Corps experience, like what did you take from your Peace Corps experience into that first long distance hiking experience? Do you think there, there was things that, even though they weren't maybe hiking specific, that you sort of pulled from that experience to get you through that hike? Definitely. Um, there were a lot of parallels. So when Cindy and I got out there after spending two years in West Africa, we thought, well, we're really comfortable being dirty all the time because there was, we were living, so for context, in Burkina Faso, we were living without electricity or running water. So we were really good at, at existing without uh, modern conveniences, without, you know, needing to take a shower every day or having to blow dry our hair or anything like that. So we were very already very comfortable with the simplicity um, with very little and, and food. So food, you know, there were a lot of, um, it was, you know, in hiking, it's funny, conversation always turns to food and, oh, I'm dreaming of a burger or pizza or what am I gonna get when I get to town? Well, it was the same in my village. Um, there was a market that would come every three days and where I could buy tomatoes or, or pasta. You know, that was, pr it was very, very, um, very rustic, I, you know, so I was again dreaming of pizza and burgers and milkshakes and all the things I would get if I, when I get to the capital city for a visit every month or two. So yeah, there were these funny little things that, that were very reminiscent of the experience. So I do think that gave me a leg up or helped me um, get into the lifestyle of hiking as a transition. Yeah. And now we, you obviously have done the AT and part of it again. What other, now have you done the Triple Crown? Have you done the Continental Divide and the PCT? What other long trails have you done? Yes, I have um, done the Triple Crown. So before I got onto, so I hiked the Pacific Crest Trail in 2006. But before that, I had gone to graduate school in England. So I'd hiked um, the West Highland Way in Scotland and a bunch of their long paths. They have um, the North Downs Way and the South Downs Way. So I had continued to do a lot of backpacking as I was trying to figure out this whole career thing. Um, but when I returned back to the States, I moved to Portland, Oregon. Cindy, my AT hiking partner, was living there and she said, oh, you're going to love it out here. Um, I moved and didn't find a great like the best job or the perfect fit right away. So I thought, hmm, the Pacific Crest Trail is right here. So I got on the PCT in 2006. 
And that's really when I decided I just want to do this forever. Um, and I tried to find, you know, how can I get paid to live outside and hike? So um, that next year I moved to Durango, Colorado and led trail crew for most of the year. And then I hiked the Colorado Trail after that season finished. In 2008, I hiked the Northville Placid Trail in New York with a very good friend of mine, um, Nemo, who I met on the PCT. Let's see, in 2009, I, moved, I hiked the Wonderland Trail and the Arizona Trail. Um, I tried to hike something every year. And so, I, and then it was 2015 before I got back out and finished the um, Triple Crown with the Continental Divide Trail. Um, but there's other trails interspersed in there. I try to hike as much as I can. <laughs> that's so fantastic. That's great. And now how have you, uh, what's the secret? How have you created this balance where you're able to do this much hiking and, and still have a, make a living and, you know, <laughs> and survive it, you know, when you're not hiking? That is the, a great question. Um, learn to live without, <laughs> you know, I, I've lived over the years very simply, uh, just so I can, um, you know, get out there. I take transitions. I really optimize my transitions. So when I finished working trail crew, I was like, well, I'm already in Durango. So I'm going to hike what I can from right here. Um, and the pre the next couple years I was working in wilderness therapy in Bend. That's what brought me to Bend, Oregon, where I live today. And so that schedule was eight days on, six days off. So in my six days off, if you take one week off, it gives you three weeks. So then I was able to do things like the Wonderland Trail. So you take, uh, yeah, opportunities where you can find them. And I've also just quit jobs to go hiking. Um, I quit my job before the Continental Divide Trail. But actually, I gave them a year's notice. I was working for a publishing company here in Bend. And it turns out, like, they were some of my biggest cheerleaders at the time because I sort of took them with me. And I explained, you know, my enthusiasm for the trail and all my prep. And it actually ended up being this fantastic sort of way to share my trip with a former employer. <laughs> um, I so I try to include people in my plans and then they end up, you know, what can I do to help you and support you in this, in this journey? All right. I know this is sort of like asking somebody their favorite child or their favorite dog, but do you have a favorite trail and why? I do love the Pacific Crest Trail. I will say out of all the trails, I think I'm around 14 long distance trails now, but that one was joyful. I felt a lot of um, just delight, awe. I met amazing people. Um, I was felt very empowered. I think this was really the trail where I, I, like I said before, I decided to make hiking my career, but it was because I sort of came into my, my hiking chops and, you know, I went into this year, it was incredibly high snow year, not knowing how to read a map, not knowing how to travel through snow, but I had such a solid group of people around me. Like they, I really learned a ton through that experience. We helped each other. There was such this sense of community and skill development and just the amazing feeling of what your body can do day after day. And I just felt very powerful and empowered. Um, so that, that I think that trail really sort of changed my perspective 
on on hiking and that yes i want to commit um and find a career in the outdoors so as someone who's been doing it long enough that they ordered all of their original gear from the Campmore catalog um how have you seen it change throughout the years you know of doing it do you do you know do you like where it's gone do you do, do you you know obviously there's more people doing it it's more crowded i mean how do you feel about the general state of of like sort of through hiking and hiking in general now yeah, I mean, I really think the more people backpacking through hiking, the better. And I know that that also looks like crowded trails, um, but that's where more trails and more opportunities can maybe help spread out the use. But I think there is nothing better than to get more people connected and feeling comfortable spending long periods of time outside. And so having hiked the Pacific Crest Trail before Wild came out and the Wild Effect, like I'm very grateful to have had that experience and to have hiked before cell phones. But now that I have a cell phone, I use it. I used Far Out on the Appalachian Trail this summer. Um, I love, you know, oh, my shoes are breaking down. I'll just order another pair from my tent. You know, there's beautiful things or I'll check the weather. I, that is such an amazing sort of experience, but I can also turn the phone off and put it in my pack, put it away if I want to go back to that, you know, pre-technology experience. Um, there's so many more gear stores, so many more options. I've lightened up my pack weight quite a bit because of options that are available now that weren't available then. So, um, yeah, I mean, I think it's, it's going a wonderful direction. I think there's definitely growing pains and and where there is overcrowding and and a lot of impacts that are happening to the wildlife to the hiking experience um but i'm someone who hikes primarily solo and i love that that solitude when i'm out there that solitude can be hard to find on some of the bigger trails but there are so many smaller trails lesser known trails where you can get that solitude i have there's a long list of trails um, that I hope to hike, but you know, I doubt you'll see many people on them. So, um, we just have to look a little farther maybe, or think a little more creatively or, and, um, get the skills that we need to hike some of these, these harder to hike these routes. So the routes that are out there, like the Grand Enchantment Trail or the Hayduke Trail or the Arizona or the Oregon Desert Trail. Um, once you have the skills to hike without trail, then you can find you can find anything that you're looking for, uh, especially solitude. Yeah, you you mentioned the Oregon Desert Trail. I want to touch on a couple of options that you've been involved with to some degree in Oregon. The, the Oregon Desert Trail, and I think it's the Blue Mountains Trail is the other one. And uh, let's start with the Oregon Desert Desert Trail. Could you talk a little bit about it and your experience of it, and and what is who is the Oregon Desert Trail sort of for, you know, because it's a long kind of gnarly, you know, expedition if you're to try to do through hike the whole thing. Yeah, the Oregon Desert Trail is a 750 mile long route, and it was created by a conservation organization, the Oregon Natural Desert Association. And our former executive director who had the idea is also a PCT through hiker. <laughs> so he looked at, you know, the, the landscape in southeastern Oregon and thought, how can we get people 
because there's there's very little um, population. There are very few towns, and like one of the towns has 11 people in it, so it's very small. So how can we get people to care about these places if they have trouble getting there? There's no one. There are very few people out there. So let's make a trail, a route to connect them um, to places like Steens Mountain, which is the largest fault black mountain in the country. And Steens Mountain sits 5,000 feet above the Alvor Desert below. Um, there's these places, the Waihee Canyonlands, which is basically Oregon's Grand Canyon. It's this very deep, couple hundred mile long canyon. So um, when they looked at the, the um, desert, there's not much trail. So really went into uh, the development, What's where's the trail? Where are the roads? There's a lot of two track dirt roads out there to connect all these places. And then, hey, let's stitch it together with sections of cross country travel. So when I came, I got the job right after I finished the Continental Divide Trail. So I've been working on this for seven years now. They hired me to figure out, now what? We we have a line on the map, now what do we do? And so really a lot of that went into creating the resources so hikers can be successful on a trail. I call it a, a virtual route. A trail is not a trail. And so that revolves around creating realistic expectations. So who is this appropriate for? If you're trying to through hike and do the whole thing in one season, it's for a very experienced hiker who has the skills to navigate. Whether that's, we've had people do it with just map and compass. We've had people, and I when I hiked it in 2016, I used Gaia GPS and the maps. Um, but I don't want that to be a deterrent uh, for people wanting to try, try it out. So I have sections um, rated uh, for all different kinds of, of skills, so from the water availability to navigation to terrain. I rate each section so you can look at the materials and say, hey, well, I want to spend a week. Oh, you can go here and hike, and this is an easy entry point. And then I've developed a skills progression, um, suggestions of how to get the skills to hike those more advanced sections where you might have 40 miles without water and 40 miles without trail. So I want to help people develop um, the skills to hike the whole thing if they want to. But if you just want to go out for a day, I'll say go to the Fremont Forest. The Fremont National Recreation Trail has this amazing trail. There's water, there's shade. Um, so there's a lot of options for people, but it is as a whole a very challenging a route. Um, Heather Anderson or Anish, mm -hmm. she hiked it in 2017 and said it was the hardest thing, hardest route she's ever hiked. So I think that's a great thing. I'm like excited about that because <laughs> you have to show up. People come to the experience knowing that and they show up with the skills and, and really it's about making good decisions when you're out there and being responsive to the land and the weather and your body and just make good decisions. Mm -hmm. Well, you slightly answered one of my, my questions that I kind of had come up with during that, but uh, I was just say it's a great kind of excuse. If you want to do this trail, that's a great excuse to learn how to navigate. You know, that's not an un unattainable skill. There's lots of places that will teach you that and learning how to do that. But the other one was the water. Cause obviously when you hear the word desert and the name of a trail, my, the first thing that pops in my head is like, well, how do you get water? And you said there's what a 40 mile stretch without, without water. I mean, what's the, uh, 
you know, how do you, what do you recommend for that? I mean, I guess just carry a lot of water. Um, <laughs> and, and what time of year is this for? Is this a, like a year round type of trail? I mean, are you able to hike this in winter? Well, uh, in winter, well, right now there's snow all over across the, the high desert. So when we have a really high snow year, and I was thinking this would be the perfect uh, ski trail. So I've also looked at multi-sport options. So I have options if you want to ski or snowshoe in the winter, if you want to bike, if you want to paddle. I'm a paddler as well. There's three rivers you could paddle um, if you want to horseback ride. So trying to also look at other um, sports you can do out there. But going back to the water question, that is the one of the biggest cruxes of this whole thing. So I have a bunch of different ways um, to help people figure that out. We have a water chart um, and data book, which is a Google sheet. So hikers every year contribute their findings. So they get to this particular creek and it, they get there on March 20th and it's flowing great. They get there in June, it's not flowing, it's dry. They get there in September, it's still dry. So by getting multiple observations throughout the year, we get to see like, what is the reliability out there? And it does change from year to year. And we're having a drought. We've had many years of drought um, in some of these areas. So we also have water cache guidelines. So we've developed water caching guidelines with the Bureau of Land Management. We have suggested water cache locations. So it's a good idea to plan a day before your hike to go out and place caches. Um, we also have some caches maintained by trail angels. So we do have some people maintaining, um, but it really depends on the year. So this, this year, this spring was incredibly cold and snowy. And so people, your your water needs are much less when it's snowing. <laughs> um, so depending on the year and the conditions, you might not need um, to cache any water. I've had people successfully hike the whole thing without caching water, but your best water window is in the spring. So I like to say May 15th is a great time to start your hike. You'll get the best weather window. Before May 15th, it's gonna it will 100% snow on you. If you start after May 15th, you have a better weather window. And then in the fall, so mid-September is a great time to start. So I hiked it all in sections, and I did a lot of my hiking in fall. And then you'll be prepared to cache more water. So in one particular spot, I had cached three gallons for myself, which I don't know how many, that's over 20 pounds of water. But it ended up being pretty overcast when I got there. So I made the decision to dump out a gallon. So I was carrying two gallons instead of three. Uh, but you need to be prepared for that and have a the pack capacity for that much water. <laughs> How long does the trail take if you do the whole thing? Like in one go, normally? Yeah, typically four to six weeks. So I've had, we had someone, um, the speed record is Christoph Tuscher who ran it in 19 days and 17 hours. I took about six weeks. Um, some people take much longer and there's folks that are section hiking it. It might take them 20 years, which is totally fine. Do <laughs> hike your own hike. What, what's the slowest known time? That's, that's what I want to go for. <laughs> I 
don't know that to be honest but jeff it, it could be yours if you want it uh, it could be mine yeah i can definitely go well, for that well we have it on the wonderland it's Jeff's jeff, yeah. oh my god yeah, yeah. yeah jeff and i probably have it on the wonderland trail so you know <laughs> we know how, how many days did you take when you did the wonderland trail i took eight days okay so it was actually the first um hike that my partner kirk went with me on and we it was great we only did like 10 to 12 miles a day it was fabulous to go that <laughs> to go that slow <laughs> but we were so we much slower 13 days yeah, 13. <laughs> <laughs> and then the, the crazy thing is like a third of the mileage we did in one just massive horrendous awful day so like the second day was the worst day ever and then it's like three miles four miles <laughs> you know like, like that afterwards so yeah, and then the last day was long too, so it was kind of funny. But it was—it's such a beautiful trail. It was a lot of fun. Um, so when you do a trail ride, do you go with a specific objective? Like maybe it's for time and speed, or maybe it's just to do research for your new job. Like, do you generally have a plan before you do your trails, or when you did the Appalachian Trail and you had—it sounds like you may have had a time deadline. Do you just sort of enjoy it for as long as you can until your time runs out? Like, what are your sort of your objectives when you hit a trail? Typically when I'm hiking, uh, I don't, I don't plan a uh, time too much. For example, this summer, I just, I had no objective other than walk and see where I get. So that led to a lot of freedom because I didn't actually have to make it anywhere because there's so much access. I could easily get to a town and get to a road. So I left it open-ended and I really, really love that and let the journey unfold and not impose too much of my um, plans on it. And, you know, that's not appropriate everywhere. So I ground truth the Blue Mountains Trail. This is, Jeff had mentioned it. So this is a new long distance trail in northeastern Oregon that about 500 miles um, and that one I was gathering information for the the um, to develop the trail so so we could put where is the water put together the resources that hikers need and so but that also um, caused me to slow down too because I was trying to pay attention um, I was also route finding because what the line that was drawn on the map sometimes those trails didn't exist. So I would get to a place and say, well, I can't find this or this doesn't look safe. And then I had all the the maps and the um, topo, you know, topography around me so I could make decisions. Okay, this doesn't work, let me try this. And so I was making decisions on the way, which is really kind of fun. It's like a giant puzzle of where is it appropriate to go? Um, so sometimes, yes, I have different objectives, but I really like to let the trail tell me. And so I'm very much in the mindset of of the route. It's like you let the weather, you let the terrain tell you where to go and how to go and how fast to go. And you only have so much food. So you make educated guesses. But um, yeah, I like to let the trail tell me what to do. Mm -hmm. the the trail and the weather is is kind of in partnership with you on that journey mm -hmm. you know and and so you're you're kind of traveling together i wanted to just jump back one quick moment and have you explain a little bit about what ground truthing is because i ran across that term as i was preparing for this podcast and i i saw that in the with the blue mountain uh trails and 
I had, honestly, I have never heard of it. And so I had to look it up and I saw some stuff about it. Could you tell us a little bit about ground truthing and what that's about? Yeah, so ground truthing is really sort of verifying what is or what's actually existing on the ground. So for this particular trail, um, the organization who created it, the Greater Health Canyon Council, um, had really looked at topo maps and sort of said, well, there's this trail, we could connect that to this road, which could get us to this trail. Um, but as a lot of trails in the country, some of these haven't been maintained or might have been impacted by fire or just lots of different things. So, and there's development, you know, there's new roads and new houses. So ground truthing is really getting in place and finding out does this what's actually here what actually exists you can do actually a lot with google earth now google earth is so detailed but you might not have accurate um you know the the footage might be from a couple years ago but when you're thinking about creating a route or um thinking about the hiker hikers experience when others come there's nothing that can replace that firsthand experience to say, oh, there was this fence that, you know, someone's going to have to cross and this barrier might be too much for this hiker with this kind of experience. So ground truthing is just verifying all of that firsthand. And I think, um, you know, all of our trails, Appalachian Trail, Pacific Crest Trail, you know, they did that, but that was many, many, many years ago. Um, it's just kind of fun to be on the front end of, of something new and get to have that experience of ground truthing. And ha now, have you done any of the, like the PC, PCT twice or the CDT twice? Have you gone back and done, done multiple times on any of the other really long ones? I have um, hiked parts because I live in Bend. I'm really close to the Pacific Crest Trail. So I've gone back and done little sections. Like one year I hiked from Timberline into Cascade Locks for PCT days. That usually happens in August. This last um, fall when I came back from the East Coast I with a friend, we did a couple days on the PCT. So just because it's in my backyard, I find myself on the trail a lot. I would love to go southbound on both the PCT and the CDT. Maybe I wait for 20 years on each of those, but I think um, the trail is completely different from one direction. Um, you start in a different time of year, you're experiencing, you know, if I went southbound on the PCT, it would be Washington and there would it would probably be June or July with a lot of snow. It would be a completely different experience. So it would be a, a, almost a whole new trail. And plus, I'm so much older now, or I found that on the on the AT, I'm 20 years older. It found, uh, turns out I didn't remember a lot of, of Maine. And I think that's maybe part of it because it's been 20 years, but also because I was in the pull of, of Katahdin and, and we were, I was hiking with people and we were doing 20, 25 miles a day and it was just all a blur. So definitely worth revisiting those again. You have a pretty awesome trail name. Do you want to let us know what that is and then tell the story of how you came about it? 
Yeah, my trail name is Shira. Um, for those of you who grew up in the 80s, Shira was a cartoon character. There was um, her brother He Man had his own cartoon, and Shira had her cartoon. She was the princess of the universe. Um, and she would call, she would get her powers by holding up a sword um, in the air and say, I have the power. And so when I was on the, the AT day three, we got, my, Cindy and I got to Blood Mountain. Um, it had been a rough couple days. Again, we had really heavy packs. We had no idea what we were doing. It was cold, rainy, but we got to the top of Blood Mountain and it the sun was out. And for the first time I was feeling strong um, and I took my ski pole. So we were actually sharing cross-country ski poles as our hiking poles. Again, we had no idea what we were doing. I took my ski pole on top of Blood Mountain and I, I thrust it into the air and I said, I have the power. Um, and she named me Shira on the spot. And that was a much better trail name than what I've been trying. I had um, previously, right before we started the trail, I had been in, in England and it was St. Patrick's Day and I got like these shamrock sunglasses and I thought I'm gonna be Irish or shamrock or something because my last name is Patrick so I thought that would be clever but it was just they were stupid glasses and it was not <laughs> original um, but I've carried Shira through and I really have come to embody the spirit I do feel very powerful out on trail I feel very strong I um yeah, so, and I have since carried a sword to Canada twice. So when I got to Ashland on the Pacific Crest Trail, uh, my friend Nemo went with me to a Shakespeare Festival play. And afterwards they were selling plastic swords. So she bought me a sword and I then had to carry it. I carried it to, um, to Canada. And then when I was on the Continental Divide Trail, I was doing that by myself, but she mailed me a sword to Glacier National Park so I could go to Canada with another sword. So I have that in my hip belt and it, I look very cool. Sometimes the kids do a double take like, is that real? <laughs> I like to that's have awesome. fun when I'm out there. You can't take yourself too seriously. Oh, that's awesome. <laughs> um, so Hiker Trash, tell us more about uh, that. Yeah, it was like a past job, I'm putting that in air quotes. Uh, but yeah, tell yeah, us more about I, I Hiker Trash. I tried to dig out my Hiker Trash t-shirt, yeah. and I couldn't find it. I think, I think well, it's that's, that's... Who, it made it to one of my Goodwill runs one day, mm -hmm. you know, in one of my purges. But I had one of those Hiker Trash t-shirts for the longest time. It was really jo cool. Joan has probably used it to clean something, let's be honest. Uh, <laughs> no, you're that, you don't get to have that shirt, Jeff. And, you know, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> It's a collector's item now. Mm -hmm. um, well, hiker trash is a term that a lot of folks who do hike a lot are familiar with. And I like to think it's more of a, a positive sort of uh, way to refer to ourselves as we're all kind of dirty and smelly. And um, you find yourself doing things you wouldn't expect, like getting outside of the grocery store and just like dumping everything all over. And you're just like, you know, it's there's sort of a... Yeah, it can be it can be taken a little far when people are pretty gross or there's some sometimes pride in not showering at all for months. That's that's the far end. But so there is this term and we were lovingly call each other hiker trash. And so I had taught myself to screen print. I was screen printing. I'm, I'm also a graphic designer. Um, that's what I went to college for graphic design. 
So I had been making bike designs primarily and screen printing them on recycled clothing and selling them at events and bend like a lot of cycle cross races. And then a friend was like, Hey, what make me a hiker trash, uh, uh, screen. And so I did, I made a hiker trash, um, screen and would just for friends printed on things. But then another, um, hiker and bend Brian Frankel, who actually started ULA packs. Um, he's like, Hey, what if we start a business and we try to sell some hiker trash stuff. So in 2014, we started a business. And so we made hats and shirts and we had a variety of different things, some silly pints, some lots of stickers, temporary tattoos. And so I would design different hiker trash, um, designs, different iterations or different you know, takes on it and then sell, go to hiking events and sell them at PCT days or the um, kickoff and online. And it was, we would give a certain percentage of every sale back to trail organizations so hikers could vote on which trail they want their um, money to go to with each purchase. And it was a fun way to stay engaged in the, in part of the hiking community. At the time I was working for a publishing company here in Bend, so I wasn't hiking for my job. So this was a way to still sort of have something I was contributing, I was a part of, it was a reason to go to events and um, hang out with people. And a lot of those events are like family reunions now. And you you may never actually hike with someone, but you go to, to an event and you're like, hey, so-and-so, it's been so long. and because you've had those shared experiences, I, I don't think you necessarily have to hike with someone to really feel that connection. Um, so we had the business and, and we had it through when I was hiking the Continental Divide Trail. So Brian was taking care of all the shipping and, and everything. And, it, you know, it's a, I loved the creative side of it, um, but I didn't like the order fulfilling orders and having to go to the post office and like all the businessy side of it. It's like, Oh, well now we're just selling stuff. And, <laughs> you know, so we had, there was another um, hiker in town who ended up buying it from us in 2017. Um, and I think he has since closed it due to life and other directions he's gone. But for a brief time, it was out there. And I even had a couple of my designs get tattooed on people. So I was like, does that mean you've really made it when someone tattoos your logo onto their body? <laughs> so that was kind of fun. But I still do lots of designs. So I designed the logo for the Blues Ma Blue Mountains Trail. I designed the logo for the Great Basin Trail that Dirtmonger created a few years ago. So that's another route. I'm working on a logo for a national water trail. So that's something I love to do in a way to sort of use my design skills to help um, other trails and routes in the community. So yeah, going back to the Blue Mountains Trail, since you brought that up again in the logo for that, um, I was reading up on that and it sounded like at one point, the original vision for the trail, and I, you've got a great article about this, sort of the historical vision for the trail was that it would be kind of a European style trail with where you could slack pack, you know, essentially from town to town and stay in a B and B and, and, uh, and do this entire trail, which is about what, 500 miles or something like that. It's a pretty long trail that's changed 
So the, the current iteration is more of a wilderness experience. It gives you, gets you a little deeper into the, you know, a little more backcountry. And um, I was just kind of curious to see, like, what is the driver behind that and, and those decisions to do one or the other? And what are the pros and cons? And what's the ultimate goal? Because this is a very new route. It's, it's not really a trail yet entirely. Um, What's sort of the vision for the Blue Mountains Trail? Yeah, so the original idea is, I think, over 60 years old now. And the two men who had it were living in northeastern Oregon, Dick Kensey and Lauren Hughes. And they um, loved this idea of the European hiking route. And they made a lot of progress. But I think one of the big barriers is that there's just not a lot of... Um, existing businesses or towns like it just to develop that sort of experience would be a massive undertaking because you um there are again much like southeastern oregon there's just not a lot of community so you would be having to build it from the ground up and so um actually the greater house canyon council conservation organization was decided to take on um, stewardship and creation of the Blue Mountains Trail. And they had looked to the Oregon Desert Trail and had sort of thought, well, this is another conservation organization trying to engage recreation to care for these places. Um, can we model our trail or route off of what the Oregon Desert Trail is doing? So I've kind of been working with them for a number of years before I got out there to ground truth and really sort of help them come to terms or like understand you could build it all and then say you did it. Like if you still wanted to do that European experience, it's an incredible amount of resources and time to put this together and then say, okay, we have this experience. So I was uh, trying to help them see the, the route concept. You could get people on the ground now and slowly start developing those other aspects um, of something like a more um, supported trail, which has opportunities to slack pack and, and stay in businesses along the way. Um, but really, because they're a conservation organization, their main goal is to connect people to, again, the conservation opportunities, what's happening to public lands. You walk along or above the um, Snake River and Hell's Canyon for almost 50 miles. And so engaging people and understanding there are a mil, not a million, there are a lot of dams on the Snake River. This is an area that salmon have trouble um, in their might and going up and spawning every year. And so just engaging people more deeply on these places or hiking through, because I think it's an interesting place because you hike along a heavily dammed river and then you hike along a free flowing river, the John Day, you hike along the North Fork of the John Day, which is free flowing. Um, you hike next to these clear cut and these massive logging operations, and then you hike next to some old growth. And so there's this chance to really start engaging hikers to pay, you know, pay attention to what's around you and look at these differences between this river and this river and think about what that means for the wildlife and for the ecosystem. Um, and so I think that fits really well with the, the sort of ethic of 
um, a conservation organization stewarding a long distance hiking experience is tapping into that connection that hikers feel with these places we walk through. The fact that we're out, out there for weeks and months at a time is a really deep level of engagement. Um, so I, I find that really exciting and I would you know love to see more of that in the hiking community, um, really asking hikers to pay attention and um, be active in these places that we spend so much time. Renee, thank you so much for joining us today and sharing your hiking experience. It's been really inspirational to hear how you've taken your passion for hiking and made it into your like lifelong passion and career. So it's really very inspirational. If people want to find you, how do they find you to learn more about and the work that you're doing? Yeah, I, I write daily on all of my hikes on my blog, shirahikes.com. So that's the best place to go. I'm on Instagram under We Are Hiker Trash. I'm still taking that uh, hiker trash from when we had the business. <laughs> so those are the two best places, either my blog or on Instagram. Awesome. awesome. Well, thank you so much. Yeah, it's been yeah. so much fun talking to you. It's so awesome. Well, that's going to do it for us. Please make sure to subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and follow us on social media on Instagram at almost there underscore AP or the Almost There Adventure podcast on Facebook. If you'd like to support us financially, you can subscribe to our Patreon. Just go to patreon.com forward slash ATAP. You can find Severia at Adventure Us Women, that's Adventure US Women, Jeff at The SoCal Hiker, or me at The Muir Project. Our title track, Almost There, is performed by Opus Orange and is provided courtesy of Emoto. For more about this episode and all of our others, make sure to check out our show notes on our website, almosttheiradventurepodcast.com. And for the third year in a row, we're dedicating March to Women's History Month by having an episode with an amazing lady every week. Second up is mountain bike racer, Emma Marinin. As always, thanks for listening.